Hey, thank you for joining me for this edition of our Equip. On Sunday nights at Rocky Creek Church, we love to be able to take some time to be able to help. What Ephesians 4.12 says is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And right now, as a church, our uh, all of our gospel groups, our small groups, are going through uh, starting the New Testament. And so on these Sunday evening courses, we decided that we were going to go and do a New Testament survey looking through the major sections of the New Testament. And so one of the things that we did as going through this New Testament survey, um, right now we started this Sunday uh, regathering as a church, which means we have multiple smaller 20% uh, capacity gatherings, which means that our services are, are all over the place. So normally we have an equip uh, in-person um, thing going on at six o'clock, but since we actually have a service going on at six o'clock and other things, we just decided that I was gonna pre-record this and make it available for you this afternoon. So whether you watch it at six or another time, that this will help you out, learn to um, go along on the New Testament and studying it better. So either you can watch this video uh, or you might be listening to it on podcast. And for those who aren't aware, we do have a, a podcast uh, specific for our equip. So if you were someone who loves just to go and listen on the way, uh, you can do that and subscribe and uh, tons of different uh, formats and different um, situations like that. So the podcast is available or you can watch the video. We're going to make these available uh, or at least for the next few weeks at five o'clock on Sunday afternoon so that whenever you can tune in, uh, either watching it or listening to it, also on our blog post there at rockycreek.church, you can find a handout so you can print that PDF off and follow along in the notes or make your own notes anyway. Um, so we'll be doing this once again, going through the New Testament survey. If you haven't uh, been with us up to this point, you'll have no problem jumping in because we're gonna talk about a specific portion of the New Testament. But if you wanna be caught up, you can go back a few weeks as we talk about the New Testament overview, the big picture. And then also what we're doing is we are looking at 15 key um, narrative sections. And in fact, if you can remember these 15 words, honestly, you can tell the big picture of the New Testament. And that's what we're after here uh, through this um, kind of way that I'm gonna teach the New Testament survey. So uh, we looked at um, last session, incarnation, the time where Jesus came uh, in the flesh to live among us. Uh, today, we're going to talk about preparation, about this uh, stage of ministry where he's preparing uh, to go into the ministry. Uh, number three is the actual ministry itself when he starts his teaching, the miraculous things that he did, the sign ministry that he had. Uh, and then four, the uh, path of disciples and making disciples and what that looks like. Five is associations, uh, his connections that he had with the religious group, but also the non-religious group and how that uh, really um, sort of led out and had a lot of ramifications for his ministry. We're going to talk about the crucifixion, uh, the resurrection, his commission to go make disciples of all nations, what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came upon the disciples, the persecution of the early church and what happened as a result, uh, Paul's uh, meeting with Jesus on the Damascus Road and how that changed uh, well, the church, but even more so, honestly, history itself. Uh, the church council that we'll get to was the first church business meeting that talked about how People were supposed to, um, should they make uh, non-Jewish people become Jewish before they become Christian? And the ramifications that that had for the early church are just paramount. Uh, then we're going to talk about what church is and the uh, planning of churches and the multiplication of churches that happened in those times. And then we're going to talk about the instructions of what took place. 
um, during that time as far as Paul and Peter and John writing letters and what that method looked like. And then we're talking about recreation there in the um, and uh, the book of Revelation. So we're going to look at that uh, together. Those will be our weeks. But right here today, uh, as we look at item number two on preparation, uh, this section is, is very interesting. If you got your notes, you can follow along with me there. But it says, between the birth of Jesus and the beginning of his ministry, little is known about his life. The gospel authors reported very sparse details, but what we do know provides great insight into his preparation for the ministry. So many of you know this. We don't know a whole lot about Jesus between the ages of 2 and 30 when he started his ministry. Age 30 is when rabbis, Jewish rabbis or Jewish young men, would become rabbis. And so that age was kind of, uh, I think, a critical one for him to start. There was uh, So he started his ministry at age 30 when most men would become rabbis if they chose that path. Uh, and then he had a three-year ministry, and the reason we know he has three years ministry is because if you follow the gospel accounts, we're marking it by that he celebrates three Passovers. And so we can kind of see that there were a cycle of three years where he did ministry. So this preparation stage, basically, last week we looked at the incarnation where Jesus was born, uh, and then what happened when the wise men came, and we, we talked about last session, that how it's most likely that Jesus uh, didn't have the wise men at his birth, by the way, that what's um, recorded there in Matthew, seems like the wise men got to Jesus around the time that Jesus was two years old. So we know just a few details really about his birth and, and then when the wise men came when he's a two-year-old, and then really we don't have a whole lot up into the time that his ministry starts. But what we do know is very important for us to understand the nature of what Jesus was preparing for in that time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go along and I'm going to share my screen with you so that you can uh, go along and follow with these notes. And once again, if you have that handout, uh, you can take your own notes or if you want to um, follow along with that, print that off, that would be great as we look at uh, this preparation section this uh, number, the second section of the New Testament survey. And to start off with, I want to talk about Jesus's lost years. Uh, what happened between those years of two and 30? That's right, 28 years. We really don't know a whole lot of the life of Jesus, but we do know a few details that I think will give us a good insight into who he is, what his character was like, and what was happening during that time. Uh, first off, we realize that Jesus's family flees to Egypt uh, and later returns to Nazareth. Now that's very interesting because if you remember that the last session we looked at when the wise men came and, and they told Herod that, hey, uh, the king of the Jews has been born and King Herod ears perk up because he's a little bit nervous because he wants that role, right? He wants to be in charge of the Jews. And if there actually is a king, he knows that his power is now somewhat um, going to be uh, someone is, is gunning for his job, basically, right? So he is concerned about this and what uh he decides to do is he tells the wise men hey why don't you go and find him and then tell me about it because i would love to worship this little baby boy as well knowing that he wants to find this boy and kill him but so what happens is the wise men go see jesus and then they're warned in a dream not to go and tell herod and so what happens is is that herod uh has goes on a murderous rampage a genocide of trying to find jesus and so he starts killing every young boy age two and younger, which once again shows us that most likely by the time the wise men were there, Jesus was two years old. So during this time, Jesus flees to Egypt and later returns to Nazareth. Nazareth, Nazareth is in uh, that 
geographical location of which we would know as Canaan or the promised land, right? Israel. So all those names, what, what's interesting here is if you, you look at this, Jesus's family flees to Egypt and later returns to Nazareth. So, so don't, don't miss this side of things where if, if you, you, you see this, what happens is, is, is that if he's fleeing to Egypt and then later returns to Nazareth, and once again, Nazareth is in the geographical location of what the nation of Israel would be in. Uh, Israel was known to be originally Canaan and what the people used to call the promised land. So think about the, um, the foreshadowing or the connection to the Old Testament that's taking place here, that God's people are exiting out of Egypt. Uh, there is a chance at one time for originally Jesus' family, they flee into Egypt for safety and security from um, a, a dangerous situation. Well, in the Old Testament, uh, when God's people left and went into Egypt, it was because of a famine was going to kill them. Now this is a situation that this leader is going to kill them. And, and so what happens eventually is, is that they go into Egypt and then they later leave Egypt or exit Egypt or even you might say an exodus out of Egypt. So they, they leave this situation and then they go back to the promised land. So you see in this moment that what's happening here is that Jesus is... Um, really reliving the steps of the people of God. But what he's going to do through this is that he's going to accomplish what happened, but he's not going to fail. He's not going to sin. He's not going to falter. So in this, these people, they go into Egypt for safety. Then they exit out of Egypt so that they can go into the promised land following the path of the Israelites. Jesus is doing this as a young child. Uh, we, we see next that what takes place is that at age 12, he talks with the teachers in the temple. And this is one of the only scenarios that honestly we even know about Jesus uh, with him talking with teachers in the temple. And let me pull this up for us to, to read together. You may not be able to see this on your screen, but that's fine. You can open up in your scriptures to Luke 2, uh, 41. And this is one of those uh, sections of scripture that is, once again, it's very interesting for us to even kind of contemplate, right, uh, of how this would take place in, in these days. But you got to remember that when it seems like, wow, we're Joseph and Mary just not that attentive of parents because their son is gone. You got to realize that back in those days, 12-year-old boys uh, were really moving towards adulthood and there was a lot of responsibility on them. And this family was traveling as a group. It says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. So once again, an interesting kind of symbolism there that he's going into the temple, into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. He's going to do that again when he is 33 uh, specifically and uh, most likely at that age uh, and die upon the cross. It says when he was 12 years old at this point, they went up according to custom. This is their regular thing. This shows us a great deal about Joseph and Mary. They were committed, devoted people to their faith. Um, and when this feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. So this family is leaving Jerusalem after the Passover, but yet Jesus is lingering in the city of where the sacrifice is just a little bit longer, right? His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him after What's that word there? Verse 46. 
After three days, they found him in the temple, the place where God's presence is supposed to reside. Don't miss this, folks, that on the time of the Passover, Jesus goes in. His family leaves because the Passover is over, but Jesus stays until the third day. Because right after the sacrifices happen, that he lingers there in the city of the sacrifice for three days. Hopefully your mind is starting to see all these different connections, right? Um, there's, there's no, there's no uh, detail by chance that happens in the life of Christ. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So these people are just absolutely amazed. Here's this 12-year-old that is, he's asking the right questions, but he's also giving powerful answers. And these people are thinking, what in the world? We're amazed at this kid. Um, verse 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In this moment, Jesus is showing that the spiritual family of God will even take precedence over your physical family at certain points. Now, Jesus isn't being a disrespectful, disobedient son at this point. Uh, but what he is doing is he's showing them, hey, I'm going to be lingering one in a few years from now. I'm going to come in on the day of the Passover, but I'm going to go and I'm going to become the temple. And you're going to be looking for me and you're not going to find me until the third day. And so there's this foreshadowing that is taking place. And also he's showing that ultimately, as he's going to say in his ministry very soon, that when his mother comes looking for him again and says, son, you're embarrassing the family name. You're preaching and you're doing all these things and everybody's talking about you. Come home and Jesus is going to say, I have to do what my father tells me to do. And at that point, he's not talking about Joseph. He's talking about God, his father, showing us as an example. That's why Jesus came as a son, so that you and I, as sons and daughters of God, would come in and say, God has our highest allegiance more than anyone else, more than father or mother or sister or brother or wife or child. He has our highest allegiance more than anyone. And so as they were, they were amazed at him. And he says, why were you looking for me? I, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to him. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was, what was that word? Submissive to them. Here is the creator of the universe wrapped up in 12-year-old flesh, and he was submissive. He was obedient. Why? Because Jesus wouldn't sin. Even as a 12-year-old son, he never dishonored his father or his mother. And it says, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Uh, a, a phrase like that, even a lot of people will make mention that this is a good sign that most likely Dr. Luke, who wrote this, actually interviewed Mary because that sounds like a very mother thing to say. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So you can just imagine that Luke sitting there in the chair taking notes from Mary, who is now uh, an older lady, and saying, tell me what Jesus was like when he was a kid. I'm writing a book about him, right? He's, I'm trying to write my friend named Theophilus. I want to tell him everything about Jesus. And going, oh my goodness, well, he was a great son. Here's what happened in his birth. Oh, let me tell you one time, one time, I, I thought he was going to give me a heart attack. I was 12, he was 12 years old, and this happened, and this happened, whatnot. And, but, you know, when, when I heard him speak, and I heard what the teachers said about him, and, and then when he said that thing about, you know, I had to be my father's house, like, that wasn't common lingo. We used to talk about the temple, but my son called it his father's house. And, oh, I just, 
I just treasured up all those things in my heart and I didn't let them go. And Luke's like, oh, this is literary gold. And he's, he's writing it down, right? And he's sharing those things. But we see even at this early age of the age of 12, that Jesus is doing miraculous things. It says in Luke 2.52 that he uh, grows in wisdom and stature, growing in favor with both God and man. Uh, that, that's the verse there, Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He's developing, right? So he's learning things from his earthly father in the area of carpentry. He's, he's growing in his uh, abilities. Now, this is a confusing side because Jesus is fully God and fully man. How does that work out? I, I, I don't understand all the specifics of it. But I believe that at age 12, when Joseph the carpenter says, son, let me show you how to, to make this table here, he, he's increasing in wisdom, but he's also increasing in stature. He's, he's getting bigger. He's growing. He's developing like every single one of us did. But I love this phrase of what's said about Jesus. It says that he increased in favor with God and man. A lot of times it, it, you find someone who can find it. It's a lot easier, it seems like, to find favor with, with man. You know, you can try to be people pleasers and do what this group tells you. But as soon as you make this group happy, you upset this group dynamic over here, right? So it can be difficult. But in this situation, Jesus is, he's growing in favor with God and man, right? It's not one or the other. It's both. Is that God was pleased with him, but also Jesus was someone that people love to be around. He he grew in favor with other people like Joseph and Mary, his parents and his, his siblings, but also just the common area the people that he would help build uh, cabinetry things for, right? And, and he would go and help and, and just a, along the community, like people just love Jesus. He was, he was a good, good young man uh, as he grew throughout life. And, and the only, the, the, the biggest, oh, I love this verse. It just makes me just wonder so much like, so we know when Jesus was two, we know one event that happened when he was 12. And you go, but what all happened just in his eighth year of life or his 15th year of life, his 21st year of life, all these years, we don't know anything about other than the fact of this. He was submissive to his parents. He was growing in wisdom and stature. God was pleased with him and people were pleased with him. When he made something, he made it with integrity. When he spoke with someone, he spoke with grace. He was someone that just people love to be around. But yet those years are pretty much lost. We do know that Jesus works as a carpenter while he was in Nazareth. He learned that from his father. Uh, as referenced in Mark 6.3 and Matthew 13.55. This is what it says in Mark. It says, is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. So they're going, okay, Jesus' reputation. When all of a sudden he starts his ministry going, whoa, whoa, whoa. this is just the carpenter. This can't be anybody else important in this, uh, right? Isn't this just a, a common blue collar worker? Like how can this even be happening, right? And uh, they took offense at him because they just weren't expecting that. Uh, from just a simple carpenter saying the type of things he was saying and doing the types of things that he was doing. Well, John the Baptist begins his ministry uh, around at right before Jesus does. So in Matthew 3 and Mark 1, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1, we see John the Baptist starting his ministry. And I want us to look at uh, this guy here just for a little bit. John the Baptizer, in this um, moment of preparation for the ministry of Jesus, played an incredible historical 
uh, pivotal spiritual role uh, regarding the life and ministry of Jesus. This is what we know about John the Baptist. The task of John the Baptist was to clear the way for the coming Messiah. His job was to be that opening act, if you will. He was clearing the stage. He was preparing the way. So just imagine that um, there's been a big storm that's happened in our neighborhood and someone's got to get from their house to their work, but yet there's this, there's this tree that has fallen down the road and so you can't get to where you need to be. Someone has to clear the path. Someone has to come in with a chainsaw and clear up the, the, the dead limbs and so that there's a clear path for you to get from uh, your location to your destination, right? And, and this is the point of John the Baptist. He's saying there's been all kinds of stuff that's fallen down along the way that has separated us from the presence of God. And John the Baptist is coming in like a chainsaw, just tearing stuff up, just clearing the path and saying, I am not here so that you can get to me. I am clearing the path so that when he comes, you can get to him. And they're going, well, who? Uh, are you talking about the Messiah? Maybe you're it because you kind of meet the qualifications. We haven't seen a prophet like this in a long time saying the type of things that you're saying and the boldness that you have. Like maybe you're the one that we're, we've been waiting on. And John the Baptist is clear to say, I'm not the one. All I'm doing is I'm clearing the path. John the Baptizer, he, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Uh, he is the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord, as is referenced in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, let me show you this verse. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, now watch this here. Make sure that you, um, as we're, we're coming along here, that, that you notice something. It says, And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now you might say, okay, well, the Lord is used twice there, but if you look at it, are those written differently in the Old Testament? Yeah, they are. So the first Lord uh, is not all capitalized, but in the second Lord in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, check it out in your own translation of the Bible. Most likely, uh, most translations will have that second Lord, all capital letters. So why is that? Is that a typo? It's not a typo. The Old Testament is hinting us off in our English translation to show us something just absolutely glorious that you may miss uh, if you read it too quickly. Um, so whenever you see the word Lord here, that's not capitalized. It's a word like Adonai, which means Lord or Master or Sir. It can, it can speak of God or it could speak of someone else. This word down here is another Lord. This is only spoken of the great I Am. So when Moses is at the burning bush, and with the commission to go and tell Pharaoh to let uh, God's people go, he says, Pharaoh has numerous gods. I don't even know your name. Can you give me a name? And the burning bush says, I am who I am. You go tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you to him. And what is that word? Well, if you translate that word, that word comes across as Yahweh. And in our translations, the great I am, I am who I am, Yahweh is always uh, translated in our English Bible as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So with this, what's, what's really great here is that this is the covenantal name for God that the Israelites would um, invoke as their specific name for God. So why is this important? Well, in this verse, Lord is used twice in the English, but in the original Hebrew language, that is not... Uh, what's going on here. And the Lord, the master, the, the possible Messiah whom you seek will suddenly come to his what? Temple. Now, where do we just see Jesus? Well, 
We saw Jesus go in the temple as a 12-year-old boy. Uh, we saw Jesus go into the temple when he was a young man because of the customary rites. But when will we see Jesus um, really come into the temple uh, in a significant way? It's the week of the Passover when he runs in the temple and begins to turn over tables. He, that, that matches, suddenly come to his temple, right? I mean, he suddenly comes and everybody is literally duck and cover, right? They're just going, what in the world? The Lord whom you seek, you, you've been waiting for this Lord, this Messiah to come. He's suddenly going to come to his temple and he's going to turn tables over and drive people out with a whip and say, this house will be a house of prayer, my father's house right? My father's house, the, the zeal of the Lord has consumed me to do this. So, so the messenger of this covenant and whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord, Yahweh, the God almighty. So what's happening here is that the Lord is speaking about the Lord who he is going to send into his temple. So this is Yahweh sending Jesus to go into the temple and clean house. And John the Baptist is this messenger who is preparing the way before Jesus to come. So Yahweh is sending the messenger John to clear the path for Jesus to come. So here's this prophecy that we see about not only Jesus, but also John the Baptist. Uh, and, and so what's beautiful about this situation he prepares the way of the Lord. It's mentioned there in Matthew 11.10. But he's also the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. It's mentioned there in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 through 6. It's not saying that Elijah is resurrected from the dead and John the Baptist has kind of taken that mantle. What it's more like is that he comes in the spirit of him. And so Elijah was known as a bold prophet who didn't care what anybody said and would take on anybody. Um, to call people back to the one true God. And John the Baptist comes in that same spirit, going out in the wilderness, making bold declarations, calling out the religious and even the political leaders of the time to a different way of living and saying, you better get ready. The presence of the Lord is coming. In the same way that Elijah called fire to come down from heaven, John the Baptist is seen as calling down fire from heaven because when people talk about him, John says, well, I baptize with water, but there's one who's coming. He's going to baptize with fire. So in the spirit of Elijah, the fire coming down from heaven, that now Jesus is that fire that comes down from heaven who is going to baptize us in. And so John is, all he knows, he's clearing the path, but he's, he's not the Messiah. Uh, John the baptizer, he was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were devout older Jews of the priestly line. You can read about their story and his miraculous uh, birth uh, in Luke chapter 1. What is unique to see is that this story, if you read it, it sounds a whole lot like the story of Abraham and Sarah, the people of whom God had called out to and said, um, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and there's going to come someone from your family who's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And Abram says, I'm too old to have a child. There ain't no way that's going to happen. And God says it will happen because when this birth happens, it's going to be so miraculous that everybody's going to know that this is something of God. And so when Zachariah and Elizabeth are so old, they are past the childbearing years. There's no way they're going to have a child. They've been known to have a child. Zachariah is a priest, and it just so happens that he it's his time to go in and, and be a part of the, the sacrifice and the special part of the worship service. And as he goes in there, he gets a message from the Lord and uh, he says, you're going to have a son this time. And he's like, you, you got to be kidding me, right? He, he, did, he doesn't believe it. So he's, he's struck 
uh, where he can't speak. And so he comes out and he can't speak. And everybody goes, oh, man, you met with God. And, and, and one of the things that, that God communicates to him is that you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And Zachariah is going, well, that, that's something that, you know, how, how can we make that? It's supposed to be the family name, right? But no, no, no. God is, he's, he's very clear on that when the son is going to be born, what his name is going to be. And so John has a miraculous birth. And in the same way that Abraham and Sarah's uh, birth of Isaac is clearing the path for later on in this family, a coming Messiah, Zachariah and Elizabeth are an older couple whose miraculous birth uh, produces John who clears the way for the next birth in the family line that's going to come in the person of Jesus. Uh, we know this, that Elizabeth and Mary were related. Uh, so Elizabeth, the mother of John, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, were related. Sometimes it says their cousin. Sometimes it says that Elizabeth was Mary's aunt. Here's the verse uh, there that in Luke 136, it says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, whom was called barren. And so uh, John the Baptist is about six months older than Jesus, uh, just a little bit older, but these are cousins or distant cousins or some kind of family relation here. Um, but we know that they are close in age as well as close in family, close enough that Elizabeth and Mary are getting together and sharing uh, their expectations and hopes and also uh, thoughts about the coming birth in their family. Um, John the Baptist was known for a few things in Matthew 3, 4, and 5. He's known for preaching in the wilderness, which is a unique setting. Uh, most uh, modern-day preachers, we want to go as close to where the people are to make it easy for them to come to us and not John the Baptist. He's out there in the wilderness. He's out there on his own, and people are coming to him. He's wearing camel's hair, so he's just dressing a little bit different. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He eats different. He dresses different. He talks different. And he really doesn't care. He is showing, I think, even through his physical appearance, his diet, uh, his location. I'm not here to do status quo religious service. I am here to change this, to do a different way of living. I'm clearing the path and I don't have to look and act and sound like every single other religious person because that's getting us nowhere. So he looks different. He eats different. He drinks different. He, he lives, he walks, he dresses, he talks different than everybody else because he's saying there's a new way coming folks. The old way is done. It's tired. It, it has been tested and found lacking and it just doesn't work. And so as he's out there in the wilderness, one of the things that happens is that John baptizes Jesus. Um, it's this beautiful moment where Jesus comes up, John's been baptizing lots of people, and then Jesus comes up to him and he says, I want to be baptized by you. And John goes, are you kidding me? I got, I'm not even unworthy to tie your, untie your sandals. Um, I, I know who you are. You're the Lamb of God who's coming to take away the sins of the world. But what's happening here is that John, he doesn't feel worthy um, when he... Um, comes along and he doesn't feel worthy to do this. Jesus tells him, permit it, let it happen. Trust me, you got to understand there's something bigger going on here. And one of the things that's rightfully shown is that a lot of people say, well, he sets an example for us. And that is true. Jesus is showing an example of the, the beauty of baptism, that it's this public uh, declaration of something that's happened inside that you're identifying with. And in our context, as the New Testament continues to unpack the nature and the uh, symbolism of baptism. It's this picture of that in sin, we, we are dead, but that we are brought back to life. And so Jesus sets an example of this wonderful 
um, example and symbolism of that we're supposed to live in a certain way and that this is a wonderful practice so that after someone has come to know Christ, that baptism is a beautiful thing, not to be done in private, but to be done in public and saying, I identify not only with God that I was dead in my sin and now I'm alive, but also to other people. I want you to see that I've done this. But there's one other thing about um, Jesus' baptism that's important. Jesus was baptized uh, to fulfill all unrighteousness, right? So he's baptized to fulfill all unrighteousness. And what does that mean? Because, you know, you think like, when, when, when John says, I can't do this, and Jesus says, permit it so that I can fulfill all righteousness. Well, Jesus was completely righteous, right? So why, why is he doing this? Because it's not like being baptized makes him righteous. We, we don't think that. But to understand, we really got to understand the importance of what's going on here. So, so Jesus is being baptized in a particular river called the Jordan River. And, and Jesus' symbolism as baptism is very remarkable if you really think through what's taking place here. Um, I want you to go here. Here are just a, a few kind of images I want you to consider here for a second. First off, this image here in the middle is an old painting of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, because it says, uh, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2, it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So at creation, there's this moment where um, the Spirit of God is not reserved for Pentecost or later on at Jesus' baptism. The Spirit of God is mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Second verse in the Bible, the Spirit of God is mentioned. Um, and it says the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And so, so before God is created, the way that he explains it so that mankind can comprehend it, uh, in those days, the waters represented the untamed chaos. You went far out on the sea, out in the waters, and you didn't know how far it went, and you went there to die, typically. That's what took place. So what's happening here is, is that at creation, the waters symbolize the unruly, chaotic, unstable, just source of stuff that God puts down first before he forms the land and forms the, the worlds and forms everything where he, he forms it first three days and then he fills it the, the uh, second three days. So on day one, two, and three, he forms it, right? He puts the, the um, day and night and then he does the sky and the water, then he does the land and then he fills it day four and five through six where he puts the sun, moon, and stars and where on day one, he created the light. On, on day five, now he puts the birds in the water. Three days later, where he had put the, this, the, the birds and the fish, where he put the sky in the water. On day six, he now fills the land with creeping and crawling and walking, uh, all the animals that goes on the earth, because three days earlier, he had formed the earth. See, you see what's taking place here? So, but yet in this, the, the waters represent this chaos where you go to die and there's no coming back from. The, the Hebrews and the Israelites, they were, they, were, they were so concerned about what took place there that it was always a scary place, and rightfully so. What did God bring about on creation when sin had reached such a high level that God said enough is enough? Well, he, he brought a flood that everyone and unless they were in the ark were dying so there's all these other people out here that are dying in the water that's what water does it's chaos you don't come up from it if you go too far out there you'll die so when you go under the water you need someone to bring you back 
up from the water. If we go to Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, there's a parting of the water that took place so that the people could come through. The waters represented death. They, they were, the Egyptians were behind them and they're, they're going forward and, and they're concerned, are we going to live? But think about what happens in, in, in the form of baptism. When someone goes down and they come up, what happens to the water? The water actually separates them. It, it divides over this thing that goes through. So as a person comes up from the water, the water is split or divided. What happens with Moses at this point? The waters are divided and the people go through the waters just like a baptism. It's not the only occasion where it happens like that. In fact, Joshua later uh, at one point, or as having to cross, but they come upon a certain river. You know what river that was, by the way? It was the Jordan River. And what did they do? They put the ark of God on these poles and begin to walk to the Jordan. And then all of a sudden, the Jordan River parts as if the people are being baptized through it. And what are they carrying? The ark of God. What did that represent? The actual presence of God, the mercy seat where the sacrifices would be taken and that God would forgive his people. Now, don't miss this. In the Jordan River, someone named Joshua, which means Yahweh saves or Yeshua or Jesus, the same name, leads a group of people to take the symbol of the presence of God through the Jordan River and the waters part so that the person can come forth. Years later, the presence of God in physical form in the person of Jesus would come through the Jordan River and the waters would part so that the presence of God could come to the people. Do you see what God is doing through his word? Then we even get down to a prophet named Jonah where he is in the belly of a fish encapsulated in water. It represents death. And yet on the third day, he comes up out of the water alive. Now, why? What does this mean for us? It means that Jesus, when he came to fulfill all uh, righteousness, is that he is, he is identifying himself with this Spirit hovering over the water, by the way. We're going to notice that here in a second in his baptism. What's happening? The Spirit is hovering over the water at, at a new creation where life is springing forth out of chaos and nothingness. And that there is people that are coming forth through the waters just like at Noah Day. And as the people are being baptized to the Red Sea and coming out on the other side and the presence of the Lord coming through the ark, being going through the Jordan River and Jonah being burst forth through the waters to come back to life. This is a symbol of what baptism is. It's this beautiful symbol. And don't miss it, though, when he fulfills all unrighteousness. Just imagine this way, that if uh, in those days also, sometimes people would go in to bathe in certain rivers because they wouldn't have certain showers like we would, right? So if you go into a river to go bathe, the only problem is that when you get to the river, guess what's all around you? Everybody else's filth that's been washed off. So when Jesus goes into the Jordan River, he has no spiritual filth upon him, but he walks into the waters that symbolically has everybody else's filth washed off of them. So when he is submerged in the water, now he comes up carrying the filth and the dirt and the sin that everybody else had symbolically had washed off. Do you see what he's doing to fulfill all righteousness? He goes and he is covered in the sin that he has come to die on the cross for. 
So he identifies with all of this stuff, all the people that John the Baptist had baptized in the Jordan, baptized in the Jordan, baptized in the Jordan, all their sins symbolically washed off. Jesus goes, submerge me in that. And he goes down under the waters and he comes back up and it's all covered upon him. Why? Because now that he's covered in their sin, he's going to go and pay for it on the cross. This is to fulfill all righteousness, not his righteousness, but by identifying with our unrighteousness, it provides the righteousness that we need. One of the most beautiful things is mentioned here is that at the spirit was hovering over the waters that at Jesus's baptism, we see evidence of the Trinity. We, we, we do, because if you look at Matthew 3, 16 and 17, look what it says. It says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved, what? Oh, son. So that voice must mean what? It's the father. So a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now the word Trinity is not the Bible, but the concept is seen here. That when Jesus, the second person of the Trinity is baptized, the spirit of God is, he's doing what? He's hovering over the waters. You see that? The spirit is hovering over waters just like he was in Genesis 1-2. Now the spirit is hovering over the waters as Jesus is now starting a new creation of people who are going to follow him. And here comes this voice that he hears, the first person of the Trinity, um, that says, this is my beloved son. This is God the Father. So in this moment, does it teach us a bullet point list of, of what the who the Trinity is and what the Trinity does? No, but it does show this. It's not as if God the Father was the God of the Old Testament and Jesus was the uh, God of the Gospels and the Spirit was the God of Acts beyond. It shows that in this moment, you see all three members of the Trinity all actively participating at the same moment. So while the Trinity is, is this fact we believe that God is one, they're also three distinct persons working together to accomplish the, the salvation of, of the people whom they love. Uh, the Trinity, in addition to Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, the New Testament also contains other examples of the Trinity. Once again, not saying the, the word, but really showing us that, that the New Testament theologians saw that the Trinity was an important concept for us to understand. Um, in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit there in Matthew 28, 19, showing us this importance of how they are to work together. Second Corinthians 13, 14 says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And John 14, 15 through 16, Jesus is speaking. It says, and I, Jesus speaking, will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So here is Jesus praying to God the Father, asking for the Spirit to come. So while, once again, this doesn't give us the detailed explanation of how we should uh, defend or define the Trinity to someone, it does show us this. All three members are working together and there's this beautiful thing of how the Trinity is to work is that the Trinity was operational even before creation happened, showing that when God created us, he didn't create us because he was lonely. The, the Trinity is working in beautiful fellowship together. We see in John 14, 26, again, Jesus says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So Jesus says, in my name, the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to 
Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Let me give you a couple more. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So we see in God's loving kindness appearing, the renewal of the Holy Spirit's coming through Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross for us. In John chapter 15, verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Here's again saying, the Father is going to send the Spirit because Jesus is asking him to do. And so once again, we see this beautiful picture one of the best uh, presentations of the Trinity right here at Jesus' baptism saying he is coming to show us as people who are supposed to live as sons and daughters of God. Here's how you relate to the Father and you're dependent upon the Spirit to come upon you to live. And so really the concept of the Trinity I think is so such a brilliant concept, even though hard to fathom and comprehend, is to show us the way that we are to interact with God as Jesus comes as a son saying, Father, I depend on you, but I need your spirit to empower me to live for you. Uh, John the baptizer, we see that he, he decreases so that Christ may increase. We see this picture of in John 3, 3, he says, he must increase. I must decrease. It's not an option. Like, that must happen. And then um, before John was beheaded in Matthew 14, he questioned Jesus' identity um, in Matthew 11. Even though all these wonderful things about John, at a certain point, he says, I, I, I'm in prison now for doing the right thing. Jesus, are you sure you're the one? And he goes in and he speaks to, he calls his disciples to go speak to Jesus and says, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Should we look for someone else? And Jesus reveals about how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about the uh, about the coming Messiah. And we believe that John in his inner life knew that what he'd done, he'd cleared the path for Jesus. But this preparation stage is John the Baptist clearing the path for Jesus. And as soon as Jesus is baptized, as soon as that happens, this last section here for us to look at is Jesus and the tempter. Um, that after Jesus' baptism, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by Satan. And so what's taking place here is that there is this understanding and belief that Jesus is baptized, that he's led by the Spirit to go into the wilderness, right? Where symbolically thinking about what happened with the Israelites going into the wilderness, he's being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And so it says there that Satan tempts Jesus with every temptation, okay? Then Luke chapter 4, verse 13, it says, after he had ended every temptation. What we don't know about what Luke said is, does that mean every temptation that's mentioned there, those three, or does it mean every single temptation that you can imagine was thrown at him and Jesus only told his followers about these three specifically, or these are the only three that Luke and Matthew wrote about? These gospel writers share three of the main temptations, and they are a temptation about provision, power, and protection. So what I mean by that is that if you think about it, it's, okay, Jesus, you've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. If you are hungry, if you're the son of God, don't you think your God would have been feeding you by now? It's, it's a temptation about provision. He wants him to eat something because he wants him to doubt God's faithfulness and presence in his life. He's, he's wanting to really point in and, and to go along and to, to make him doubt and question this fact that 
God the Father is providing for Jesus. You know what? Satan comes alongside and, and wants to make us be tempted as well and say, are you sure God's providing for you? You sure you have enough? Don't you think you need a little bit more? If God really loved you, he would have taken care of this, and it causes us to take matters into our own hand. Uh, the issue of power, hey, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you'll just bow down and worship me, right? Just I'll, I'll give it. Just look as far as you want. Do you want these people? I know that's why you came for, for their allegiance. If you'll just do this one thing, worship me, then I'll, I'll, I'll let you have that, right? And so every temptation, honestly, this issue of pride, it's an issue for us to go into that area of temptation and to desire power on our own. But also the issue of protection. He says, why don't you just throw yourself off here because God has promised I will always protect you. Sometimes we doubt, will God protect us from every evil thing? And so these temptations, at least the ones that are represented, are issues of provision, power, and protection. And they're temptations that Satan also uses on every single one of us uh, every day. Uh, it says that Jesus had fasted for 40 days and was hungry, indicating the reality of his humanness. I think it's one of the most um, uh, hilarious uh, verses in the Bible where it says after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And I go, well, duh. But it is an important verse because it shows you it's not like Jesus was somehow uh, allowing his super ability as God not to experience the hunger pains as a human. Jesus was fully God, fully man. And so when he had fasted for 40 days, he was hungry. And what's the first thing that Satan does? He comes, starts waving some bread in Jesus' face, right? And, and so he's showing us that he, the humanness of it. But Jesus does in 40 days what Israel could not do in 40 years, which was be completely obedient to God's laws. The Israelites had been in the wilderness for 40 years trying to follow God's commands, but they couldn't do it. But Jesus accomplishes it in 40 days. If you think about Moses' fast of 40 days mentioned in Exodus 34, 28, Jesus is um, coming along and, and showing, I did a fight with that. There's 40 days of spying out of the promised land in Numbers uh, chapter 13, verse 25. It's okay for the people to come into the promised land. Jesus is doing that. And there's 40 years of Israelites wandering in the wilderness as mentioned in Numbers chapter 14, verse 34, and Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. There's a sense of him wandering in the wilderness uh, and coming alongside, uh, and yet Jesus is all of these things. He's identifying with what had happened with the Israelites. Uh, what's beautiful to see in this moment is that Jesus doesn't argue with Satan. He just simply quotes scripture to him. Every time that Satan throws a temptation at him, Jesus' response is, it is written. It is written. It is written. And he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy every single time. And this is why it's such a good indication. Psalm 119 uh, verse 11 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Well, that's verse 9, sorry. He's a living according to your word. Verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may what? That I may impress my friends. I've hidden my your word in my heart that I may uh, impress my church. No, he goes, I've hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So Jesus shows us this picture of Psalm 119, verse 11, that if you want to fight against sin, the best way to do it is to memorize scripture. I don't care who you are, what your sin struggle is, what your area of temptation is, whatever the darkest, deepest area of your life is where you feel like you trip up, what I would encourage you to do today is find the most uh, areas in your life where you struggle with temptation. 
the top area, top two areas, top three areas, and I'd find two to three verses that you're going to memorize this week and say, if the issue is this, let me find verses of scripture and you memorize that so that when the temptation comes, you at least have God's word arm ready to go, the sword of the spirit ready to start going into battle. So find these fighter verses. What are the weakest areas in your life? Find two to three verses that you can memorize so that when Satan does come tempting you, you have something to uh, fight him with. Uh, what's interesting to know is that Satan also quotes scripture but misinterprets it. He actually quotes from Psalm 91. He plays Jesus' game and says, okay, if you're going to quote scripture over and over and over, I can do that as well. So why don't you throw yourself down because Psalm 91 says he'll protect you, right? And what is he doing? Well, he's quoting it correctly, but here's the thing. He's taking it out of context. He, he takes it out of context. He twists it and uses it for his own advantage, which is what he still does today. And a lot of people do today where they want to do something, but they know God's word stands against it. So they take a verse or a phrase out of context and they apply it to their own situation. That is a uh, play from the playbook of Satan himself. And so Satan uses scripture, but he uses it poorly. He doesn't handle it accurately the way that God put it together. Satan in defeat leaves but promises to come back at an opportune time. So he knows that he's been defeated by Jesus, but he promises that he's going to come back at an opportune time. I always think it's interesting that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, uh, opportune time is used about be angry, don't sin, don't give the devil an opportunity. Just showing us again that sometimes Satan will come to us that he knows the opportune time. He knows when we're weakest. And so Satan knew he was defeated, but he knew that he'd come back again. In the same way he comes back for us as well, uh, that he will uh, accept defeat in a battle, but he always comes back and he, he, he identifies when the weakest times were. The problem with Jesus, he never found a weak moment. Not with Jesus. With us, yes, but not with Jesus. After this altercation and being ministered to by the angels, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, Jesus begins his public ministry. So this is the validation piece. He, he uh, reveals or he, he proves to all the heavenlies, right? God, Satan, angels, demons. This guy is who we think he is. He is the perfect son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And he's going to put them on his shoulder because he doesn't have any of his own. So he's going to be able to be the redeemer because he's perfect. Uh, just a regular man who struggled with sin couldn't go to the cross because he would be paying for his own sins. To come in as a substitute, he has to be without blemish. And at this moment, this stage of preparation ministry, he is proving that he is without blemish. And so here we are, point number two in the area of preparation. We see what Jesus is doing. He's preparing a way to get into ministry. Next week, we are going to look at the ministry of Jesus and how it started and how it is completely change the world. Let me pray for us as we uh, finish this up today. Uh, Father God, we thank you for the life of Jesus. We thank you for the time of preparation that he has as a young man and had parents who made faith an important part of his life. We thank you for John the baptizer, clearing the path uh, to make ways so that people could connect with God. But we also just thank you for Jesus who, who would go into the wilderness and do what we could not do to come out perfect on the other side so that when he went to the cross he could go to conquer and defeat and pay for our sins because he had none himself lord thank you for those that are watching or listening to this lord i pray that this has caused them to love your word more to know you more and cause us to be students a diligent students of your word uh, as we get to know you more in the new testament in the name of jesus we pray amen see you next week